If you will, join me in Jonah chapter 4. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 4. If you are using one of our new Bibles from the seats in front of you, those blue ESV Bibles, uh, we'll be on page 775. Our sermon this morning is entitled, The Withered Plant, from Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. Our key words for worshipers in training are plant, shade, and wrath. There was a German fighter pilot who was an ace. He was a second lieutenant, and his name was Franz Stiegler. He was very, very good at what he did, and if he had one more kill, he would win Germany's highest award for valor, which is called the Knight's Cross. Stiegler's oldest brother was also a fighter pilot, and earlier in the war, he'd been shot down by American fighters. In December 1943, Stiegler was standing near his fighter on a German airbase when he heard overhead the sound of an American B-17 bomber. And as he looked up, he saw it flying so low, it looked like it was going to land. And as the bomber disappeared behind some trees, he tossed his cigarette aside, he saluted the crewmen on the ground, and he took off in pursuit. As Stiegler's fighter rose up to meet the bomber in the sky, he decided he was going to attack from behind. He climbed up behind the sputtering bomber. He squinted into the sight of his gun. He placed his hand on the trigger, and he was about to fire, but he hesitated. He was baffled. No one in the bomber was firing back at him. And he looked closer at the tail gunner who sat there completely still. His white fleece collar of his jacket was soaked with blood. And Stiegler turned his neck to examine the rest of the bomber. Its skin had been peeled away by shells. Its guns knocked out completely. He could see men huddled inside of the plane, tending to the wounds of other crewmen. And then he nudged his plane alongside the bomber's wing and he locked eyes with the pilot. And his eyes were wide with shock and with horror. Stiegler eased his index finger off the trigger. He couldn't shoot. It would be murder. Now Stiegler wasn't motivated by vengeance that day. He lived by a code. In fact, on battlefields all across the world, all throughout the history of battle, soldiers of all sorts and kinds have lived by this code. It's called the warrior's code. And it has shaped cultures as diverse as the Vikings and the Samurais and the Romans and the Native Americans. The code is designed to prevent soldiers from becoming monsters. In Homer's epic poem, The Iliad, the great hero Achilles broke the code when he thirsted for vengeance and he dishonored himself by his actions. But it's that warrior's code that kept Stiegler from shooting that day. A German pilot who who spared the enemy risked death in Nazi Germany. If anyone reported him, he would be executed. But he didn't care. And alone in the sky with that crippled B-17 bomber, he changed his mission. 
And as he stared at that American pilot, he nodded at him and he began flying with it in formation so that the German anti-aircraft gunners on the ground wouldn't shoot down the slow-moving bomber. And he escorted that bomber over the North Sea and took one last look at that American pilot. And he saluted him and he peeled away and returned to Germany. And there are a lot of stories just like that. And you can find as you read through the pages of history, enemies showing mercy to one another in the midst of battle. Now it seems confusing, it seems odd for those who were not in the moment, to those who have never experienced the turmoil of war. When a soldier fights for the objectives of his nation, he's expected to take a fight to the enemy, not to let him go, and certainly not to lead him and help him along the way. And so for those on the outside looking in, it's easy to say, but that's your enemy. What are you doing? Why would you let them go? Why would you help them to safety? What if they turn around and come back after you again? Why would you show mercy? We've read through the narrative of Jonah, and the prophet Jonah was very sure of who his enemy was. As an Israelite, there was no question that the Assyrians, and particularly those who were in the capital city of Nineveh, that these were his enemies. And they were a ruthless bunch. They plundered other nations. They were merciless in battle. And surely Israel believed that they were next on the chopping block for this superpower to come and to conquer. And so in Jonah's mind, the Assyrians needed to be destroyed. And so surely the God of Israel was going to do it. Or was he? We've seen over the last few weeks that God indeed had a very different plan for Nineveh. Now, there's no question that the Ninevites, like all of us, were quite deserving of destruction. But instead, God sent his unwilling prophet through a series of unlikely events to preach to the Ninevites that they should repent and turn to him. And our friend Jonah fails to see the beauty in all of it. He hates it. We saw last week as he responded with sinful anger. And he turned to God and he said, Mercy, these are your enemies. Why are you showing them mercy? They're the enemies of your people. They don't deserve mercy. And so as the Ninevites rose to faith and repentance, Jonah descended into self-serving disdain for the work of God as he is forced to consider himself. Should God not show them mercy as he has shown Jonah and the Israelites mercy time and time again? Well, this morning we're finishing our walk through the book of Jonah, and I hope it's been a helpful blessing to you as we've considered several of the implications of Jonah's story and how it relates to our lives as the people of God. And as we look at these final verses, the first thing I want us to see, beginning in verse 5, is that God works providentially for the good of his children. Let's begin in verse 5 of Jonah chapter 4. Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. 
He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now we have to do a little bit of guessing here, but it seems most fitting to assume that Jonah has waited the 40 days in Nineveh before he heads out of the city to see what was going to happen. The 40 days that God had said would be the time period before Nineveh's destruction would come. Yet Jonah sat confused. How could it be that the very word God gave him to preach was not going to turn out the way that it was preached? God's never announced anything rashly or on a whim. How could it be then that God would call Jonah to proclaim in the name of God that in 40 days Nineveh would be destroyed and yet there's no effect? John Calvin writes, this then was the cause of why he sat waiting. It was because he thought that though God's vengeance was suspended, his preaching would not yet be in vain, but that the ruin of the city was at hand. This, therefore, was the reason why he still waited after the prefixed time, as though the event was still doubtful. But this brings to reality... That in this life, we're all called to live, namely, live in a world in which God so often works in secret. So often we act according to the word of God, just as Jonah did, and we expect certain results, just as Jonah did. But in God's grand design, he may very well have something else planned entirely. When Jonah proclaimed to the Ninevites in chapter 3 and verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, he heard nothing within that of a conditional clause for repentance. But we've asked the question before. If God didn't want to save the Ninevites, why send a prophet? He could have just destroyed them. And likewise, even though Jonah knew he didn't call the people to repentance, we saw last week that he was very much aware of God's character. He even even feared following through with his task because as he told God, is is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, I knew you were going to do this and that's why I'm angry. I hate these people. Why don't you hate them with me? But here we see Jonah still had some bit of hope. Maybe, just maybe, I'm going to climb the mountain and sit and watch and God will destroy them. It wasn't hope that he ought to have, a hope that they would prove to truly be repentant, a hope that they would persevere in the faith and leave a godly legacy as a city that was once wicked but has turned to God and is making a significant impact for the kingdom. That wasn't his hope at all. No, his hope was their destruction. But God's secret will included a condition. Repentance would preserve Nineveh. And indeed, repentance did preserve Nineveh. 
Now, when we talk about God at work, providentially, we're talking about God's actions in our world. And with how, according to what he has revealed to us in Scripture, the activity is carried out day by day. So providence is a simple theological term that describes the fact that God provides. Scripture teaches us that the love and care of God extends into the details of our lives in a wide variety of ways. For for example, in his teaching about cares in this world and anxieties, Jesus tells us that the hairs on a believer's head are all numbered. And he reminds us that if every movement of a sparrow is noted by God, believers can be sure that since they are more valuable than sparrows, indeed our movements too are directed by God. We remember in God's providence, he allowed a thorn to remain in Paul's flesh. Or as characters like Moses and Joseph look back on their lives, no doubt they could see how what seemed to be very trivial events, Joseph's colored coat, the cry of a baby in the bulrushes, the forgetfulness of a released prisoner, how all of this contributed to their God-given destiny. In fact, one of the greatest statements of God's providence was from the mouth of Joseph as he spoke to his brothers who had plotted to kill him, and instead they sold him into slavery, leading him to many years of struggle and suffering. And when he was finally the governor who saved people from a great famine, his brothers came before him, and they were fearful but, jo- uh, but, but Joseph set them all at ease, and he said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many shall be kept alive as they are today. This is God's providence. And all of us are in the same exact position. God guides us even when we don't realize it. He cares for us. And though sometimes our lives have very dark sides to them, and pain, and loss, and heartache, and suffering, all of these things are woven together by God with times of pleasure and blessing that he can further his purposes with us. And so when we talk about God's providence, we're saying that by some mysterious process, God is able to work even the weaknesses and the persecution and even the sins of our lives for the good of his kingdom. And we see that with Jonah, don't we? In his sin and in his disgruntledness, God was still at work for Nineveh. And God was still at work showing mercy to Jonah to bring about a greater end. We're reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul who told the Athenians that we live and move and have our being in God and that all things consist in Christ. The details of God's providence is shown even in the fact that God uses evil people and nations to bring about consequences. We have to remember, God has a right to govern. He himself has brought it all into existence. Therefore, he has every right in the world to do with it as he pleases. Like the potter, the Lord has power over the clay. He has the right to do with what he made, what he wants to do with it. And we can joyfully say with the apostle Paul from him and through him, 
And to him are all things. Glory be to him forever and ever. And Jonah, it seems, would do well to remember this fact. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to remember this fact. Knowing the truth of God's providence, if we're honest, doesn't keep us from being completely perplexed by it, does it? I'm certain all of us have been perplexed and confused at times about God's purposes in our lives. I just think in a simple way about my own life. When I was young, I was very into music and playing music, and then I got very involved into volunteer organizations and leadership within those, trying to organize people to fulfill a common goal. I was giving speeches. I was leading classes. And then I was in the military for four years, and I traveled around the world. And all the while, trying to look at all of these different things that didn't seem to have anything to do with one another and figure out what I was going to do with my life. I had a lot of interests, but not a lot of clarity. What was the Lord going to do? But then I had no way of being able to put all the pieces together, to come to the end where I would be able to conclude that God would use all of those things to fit for me to pastor in a church. God did all of those things in my life. They seemed random. They seemed disconnected. But in God's providence, they've come together to serve to make me able to do what he was calling me to do. And the truth is that God in his providence may work in our lives in a thousand different ways in one situation that we will never even fully know. The implications of God's actions in the midst of every circumstance are incalculable, but we can be assured that God is indeed at work in every situation and every situation fits perfectly within his will. And that's the very thing that Jonah did not like. He thought he had the end all figured out. And he was holding out hope that what he desired was going to pan out in the way he desired it. But God's ways are not our ways. God's ends are not our ends. And if we're not faithfully trusting that God does all things well, we will fall into the self-focused sin that Jonah displays for us. And so Jonah goes outside of the city here. He's all of a sudden very concerned about God's promise to destroy Nineveh after 40 days. And he gets up on the side of a hill and he constructs a shelter for himself to watch all of the proceedings. And he's, he's, still, uh, he's still coming from a heart of disdain for a people He's now spent quite some time with them. 40 days, he's seen that they've been transformed by the power of God. And yet his heart is still filled with hatred. Now here on the side of this hill, Jonah makes at least three significant errors. And they are this. First, he quit. The prophet Jonah just saw one of the most significant spiritual revivals in the history of the world and it came by a means of his preaching to those people. God didn't tell him to quit. God never told him to walk away from the work. If Jonah was faithful, having seen all of these people who have repented, he should have stayed and he should have continued to teach them a more excellent way that they could walk in obedience to the will and the way of God. But instead, he abandoned them. He left them to figure it out on their own and hoped that they would be destroyed. 
In the same way, many Christians today abandon the work that God has given them because it doesn't look the way we want it to look. Many pastors abandon their churches when ministry gets difficult. Parents give up on their children when they rebel. People walk away from certain kinds of work because it's not filled with excitement. But God doesn't give us the freedom to just simply quit. In his providence, he has us where we are. He calls us to be content in our circumstances that we will be there to accomplish his ends. The second error that Jonah made was that he built a private retreat. Jonah's shelter was his self-focused way of abandoning the people of Nineveh. Was there nowhere he could stay in Nineveh? Having been the means that God uses to expose all of them to the truth that led them to repentance, would they not have welcomed this prophet into their homes? Would they not have cared for him as long as he stayed and taught the truth to them? Of course they would have. They would have provided for all of his accommodations. But Jonah decided to be a separatist and to divide in the way that so many do when the focus is on becoming their own personal church or denomination apart from the body of Christ. One commentator writes, he creates his own domain in the shade where he will be at peace according to his own measure. Just as Christians try to make a church according to their own measure and a divine kingdom according to their own measure full of intentions which are good and effective and well-constructed, but which are only a fresh demonstration of their autonomy in relation to God. And so Jonah quit, and Jonah retreated and tried to isolate himself from the Ninevites. He didn't want to identify with them. And thirdly, Jonah was a spectator. He sat in the shadow of God's mercy on him while he simply watched and waited The people of God are not called to be spectators of the world's destruction in sin and in wrath under God. We have an obligation to identify with and to love our neighbors by the grace of God. How wicked of his heart. How evil of Jonah to simply watch and wait and hope that people would be destroyed in their sin. The church doesn't have that option. We're called to love our neighbor and to go and to proclaim to them the truth of God's word that they, might be, that they might repent and be saved. Now, isn't it amazing that the description of Jonah in verse 6 all of a sudden changes, if even for a short time? God is so merciful and patient with Jonah that he appoints a plant to grow up over him to provide shade, to save him from his discomfort, the text says. And for the first time in the entire narrative, we read, so Jonah was exceedingly glad. How fickle is Jonah? He was very happy. All along, he'd been defiant and angry and disgruntled, but now he's shown mercy by God. He's exceedingly glad. Do you see the irony He sits and he waits to see if God will destroy a people instead of showing them mercy. All the while, he himself has an instant illustration of the mercy of God in his own life. And he is exceedingly glad. Well, despite Jonah's continued defiance and lack of mercy for the Ninevites, in his providence, God does faithfully provide and show mercy to his children, even when 
We are only grateful because our own desires have been fulfilled and our own needs have been met. Our lack of mercy is no determining factor for God's showing of mercy to us. And we can give thanks that God shields us from our just reward. But our second point shows us that there will be times when God works providentially to teach us about our own hearts and to break us of our own self-serving wills. Look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked that plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now we've seen this with Jonah already. We're reminded once again that God will not put up forever with the defiant, self-focused attitudes of the hearts of his people. God granted Jonah great mercy in the midst of his self-willed sulking. But now God works to break Jonah of himself, to expose the petty foolishness of his heart. I want, to notice, I want you to notice the intentionality of God behind all that he does. Back in verse 6, it's said that God appointed a plant. Here in verse 7, we see that God appointed a worm to attack that plant. In verse 8, it says that God appointed a scorching east wind. And if you think all the way back to chapter 1, God appointed a tempestuous storm while Jonah was on board a ship. He appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah up from the waters. There can be no question that God is sovereignly at work to bring all of these things to pass. Even the most mundane of things, a worm and a plant. But they all work for his purposes. Brothers and sisters, when even the smallest things happen in our daily lives that frustrate our plans and upset our purposes and leave us confused or force us to work harder to try something new, we do well to remember the sovereign hand of God in every single detail that works to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. God blessed Jonah with the plant and he took the plant from him. Both were intentional. Both were calculated works of God. And this is how it is in our lives. Sometimes God makes it easier for us. Sometimes he makes it more difficult for us. But he always works with a higher goal than our comfort and our pleasure. We tend to forget that. And we tend to examine things from the perspective of immediate satisfaction, no matter how temporary that satisfaction might be. You and I, we would very quickly delight in a plant that shades us from the sun. But how quickly do we respond like Jonah when it goes away? He wished to die once again with an attitude that his death is preferred to this life. Now, from our perspective, we can look at what Jonah is saying and see how selfish and ridiculous it is. It was self-serving. It was pitiful. It was illogical. It was exaggerated. 
None of it makes sense. And surely, just to grab Jonah and and shake him a little bit and awaken him to the reality of his foolishness would do. He's he's placed all of the value of his life and his work and what he, he had hoped that God would do in the temporary. And he completely rejected the eternal. And so God comes with another question here for Jonah. This time highlighting just how foolish everything had gotten. Verse nine, he says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? All along, Jonah's been angry at God for wanting to save the Ninevites. But now he's angry at a worm. The worm that devoured the plant. And Jonah's rage is for that poor, poor plant that he wished God would have mercy on. Do you see the madness of his heart? At least before his anger reached the the, the majestic God of all creation. But now it's just a petty worm that God sent to the plant. This is foolishness to the highest degree. Ah, But don't let yourself off the hook too quickly here. How often are we easily angered at the smallest, most insignificant things when something else has irritated us to the point of exploding? Have you ever stomped around the house angry about something? And in all of your huffing and puffing and stomping, you miscalculate your step, you slam your toe into the chair, and now I'm angry at the chair. Chairs don't have feelings. Chairs don't move themselves. Chairs don't make decisions. But in your anger and in your ranting and in your raving, everything within you feels justified in being mad at the chair. And if you don't quickly come to your senses or someone doesn't stop you, that chair is going to make very nice firewood and you'll never have to look at it again. But that's the irrationality of our anger. And that's the irrationality of Jonah who has far more pity on a plant that sprang up in the night and offered him shade than he does hundreds of thousands of souls of men and women created in the image of God. And so God, who is still gentle and patient, he forces Jonah to see his own selfishness. Are you really mad at a worm for the sake of a plant? Does that make sense to you, Jonah? And so what do you do when you're angry and you're seeking to justify your sin? Yes, of course, of course it makes sense for me to be angry. Angry enough to die. Have you ever seen this when you've caught someone in the midst of their absurdity? They don't want to admit they're wrong, so they continue trying to justify it. Kids are especially prone to do this, right? Did you drink that paint? (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe, yes. Yes, I like it. I like paint. I'm going to drink more of it. I love it. Now, that's humorous to us as we think about it, but it's revealing of the heart. I'm going to go to the absurd to justify my actions so I don't have to admit that I'm wrong. I don't have to admit that I don't want to walk in the truth. And it's pride, and it eats us from the inside out. It's saying I'd rather sound to you like an absolute fool than admit that I was wrong or that I was in sin. 
So when that is our heart and when that is how we move between our days, God is kind to break us of ourselves. He's very kind to put the mirror before us that we finally have to look ourselves in the eye and say, you're being a fool. You're being absurd. God has shown us mercy again and again and again. And when we respond to his mercy with pride and with a self-serving will, it is for our good that God reveals to us our sin and humbles us once again. But regardless of how his people respond, the last thing we learn from the book of Jonah is that God works providentially to show mercy to his enemies. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Once again, God highlights the foolishness of Jonah's anger. It's interesting here how, uh, what God draws Jonah's attention to. He mentions 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Well, who is that? He's not saying that the Ninevites are so dumb that they don't know which hand is which. He's talking about infants, small babies who have not yet learned So God's point here is that Jonah is willing to be angry about a worm who has destroyed a plant. And Jonah has pity on this plant. But when it came to Ninevite children who had yet to be able to comprehend the difference between their right and their left hand and the cattle of the field who have not willfully rebelled against God, he completely ignores them. If not, the adult population, Jonah... Should not I at least be concerned for these others? Jonah doesn't care. He doesn't care. Now remember last week I said the book of Jonah doesn't end with the words and they all lived happily ever after. We don't really know what happened with Jonah after this incident, but we do know what became of the Ninevites. This generation did indeed repent, and there's no reason to doubt the authenticity of this repentance. But it doesn't take long for a people to forget God and to walk away on their own. We've seen it certainly in all throughout Europe. We've seen it. We live it in the midst of our own country. It only takes one generation to reject the truth of God. And then the gospel disappears from that place. And so the Ninevites did not last long as a repentant people. Eventually, they were destroyed completely and their empire came to a devastating end. That's actually what the book of Nahum is about. But in that time, in that place, in the days of Jonah, there was true repentance. And we're left with a question. It's no mistake that the book ends the way it does. We are left to consider for ourselves, is God not right in all that he does? Is God not great for showing mercy even to his enemies? How great is God's mercy? 
We have a hymn that says, There's a wideness to God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. But even that's not wide enough. The real measure of the wideness of the mercy of God is that of outstretched arms of our Lord Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross to die for our salvation. That is the wideness of God's mercy. That is the measure of the length to which the love of God will go. For some of you here this morning, you've not experienced the great mercy of God because you continue in your own self-willed way, to to run after the things in this world that do not and will not satisfy. You continue to find all the ways in which the world can serve you instead of humbly submitting yourself to God, the God who created you and who calls you to repent of your sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this world unlike any other person because he came into this world free of sin. And not only was he born sinless, unlike you and I, he continued throughout the entirety of his life without sin. He was tempted, just like us, in every way, and yet he never succumbed to that temptation so that he might fulfill the law of God that you and I are constantly breaking. And Jesus, the sinless one, died in our place, receiving in himself the full wrath of the Father that you and I deserve for our constant rebellion against the Creator. And he was dead and he was buried in a tomb for three days and gloriously resurrected by the power of God to secure our hope in the resurrection and the life to come. And when we trust in Christ, not so that we will have happier lives or that he will give us things that we want on this earth, but because we are sinners and he is righteous and we need his righteous standing before the Father if we're to have life everlasting. When we trust in him, we have life. When we reject him in prideful, self-willed rebellion, we bear the penalty of our guilt, which is eternal death. I commend to you the patient, merciful God who gave us his son that in our repentance and faith in him we might live. And so that when he looks on us and we are worthy of being destroyed, that he will look at us and he will smile upon us and he will come beside us and lead us to safety. He will show us great mercy. For those of us who are in Christ, how can we who have known the wideness and the vastness and the depth of God's mercy and have benefited from it time and time again, how can we be less merciful to others? How can we do less than love them and carry the gospel to them with all the strength at our disposal? And so we're left to remember as God's people, as the recipients of mercy, that we ought to be the most merciful of people. That through us, God would be glorified. And that all of our foolishness and all of our self-willed ways be put to death, that he would be glorified by his church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word and for the power of your word to show us through those who in walking with you before us have sinned in grievous ways to remind us that we, like a man like Jonah, are broken and sinful
in need of repentance and taking constant looks at our hearts, that we not fall into self-willed rebellion, that we not walk in self-serving sin, that we not be filled with sinful anger, but that we remember that in your providence, all of the circumstances of our lives are coming to pass as they are, that we would be forced to remember that we are in control of nothing, that you are the great God of all, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and that as your word promises, you are working all things together for your perfect ends. And as those who in the midst of all of it get to be recipients of your mercy and your kindness and your grace and your love, I pray, O oh God, that you would make us to be the most humble, merciful people on the face of this earth. God, would you do that work in our hearts that you would be glorified in us and that as a church we would be strengthened and united all together all the more that we would move forward persevering as a merciful people, showing mercy to the nations because mercy has been shown to us. God, we love you and we thank you for all that you've given to us and most especially for the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross who has died for us to secure life everlasting. We pray all these things in his holy and precious name. Amen.